after I had a brief chat with Simon from Irish Tech News about your work as a, as an author and speaker, uh, I found particularly interesting your work in banking, uh, spe- especially with the successful series of books called Bank 2.0, 3.0, and 4.0. Yes. So, uh, 4.0 in particular released uh, recently at the end of 2018. Exactly. Exactly. So the. Just, uh, the, um, before uh, before we cover the topics on um, on the book, um, I would like to know a little bit about your work in general because you're very active as a speaker and as a writer. Uh, but right now, are you focusing mainly on the future of banking, or you're still a technologist uh, with a 360 degree view of what is happening? No, no so, um, you know, I, obviously, um, you know, I, I look at the the landscape uh, for tech and um, you know the future of industries generally but um, you know, I've done, I, I done a lot of work within the banking sector so um, you know from a, a knowledge reference perspective um, you know I've, I've got over 20 years uh, working with banks on technology disruption so it, it is uh, you know I'm passionate about all tech you know I'm very interested in health tech and uh, um, you know what's happening in transportation and um, you know things like that um, but uh, you know, I, I do tend to get a lot of uh, requests for work in the banking space, which is, uh, you know, undergoing significant disruption. And from a overall perspective of research and writing on it, there's uh, there's been fairly limited uh, um, work being done. So that's given me an opportunity to differentiate. Awesome. And uh, the first uh, question that comes to mind is, what would be banking look like in 30 years, say, from now? Um, so the, the biggest shift that um, we will see is that banking essentially will just be integrated into the world around you. Um, so, uh, you know, what we, what we look at these days, uh, most, most bankers assume or they're set up so that you have to jump through their hoops. And so if you want to qualify for access to credit, if you want to open a bank account, you have to go to the bank either physically or through their uh, website and you have to get through their uh, layer of identity and risk uh, assessment before you can do anything. Um, The reality is in the future that um, banking will be highly contextual, integrated into the world around us and will just respond to your needs. So all that friction that we have today, signing application forms and submitting uh, proof of residency and all of that sort of stuff, all that friction will disappear because it's just a data problem and uh, you know we'll, we'll solve that through data. Okay. Well, now it comes to mind, um, I have a personal experience with the emerging markets or the so-called emerging markets, uh, places where, uh, you know, difference from the first world, uh, they either hadn't experienced any infrastructure in relation to banking, for example, or they have an already existing infrastructure, but it's really bad. Uh, it doesn't function properly. It's very um, low level of values. Uh, it comes to mind, for example, uh, the impact 
impact that um, cryptocurrencies had in places like Bangladesh or South Africa, um, where people had serious problems um, getting paid uh, using the conventional uh, infrastructures, the one that we were used to um, in the first world. Whereas as a contrary phenomenon, uh, the cryptocurrency in the first world created initially, um, it, it was initially unknown, and then it went through a big hype uh, from the 16, from the 17, uh, people were, you know, getting into uh, Bitcoins, Ethereum, and so forth. Uh, not really, maybe getting the actual value of the token or the cryptocurrency, but more getting into the idea of making uh, a rich uh, scheme, a quick rich scheme out of it. Now. In your experience, do you think that the first world can actually learn from the way the third world is adopting uh, the cryptocurrency uh, systems? Absolutely. In fact, I think that's true of much of the uh, banking experience. Um, we are starting to see you know, some key differentiation in the experiences that are emerging in places like China, Kenya, you know, and, and Venezuela, for example, um, that that are quite different from the way we would have thought about banking had it evolved from a Western perspective. So part of the issue we 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 have, um, you know, if we take for for example payments as an illustration, um, you know. 2018 was quite an interesting year because it was the first year that mobile payments exceeded plastic card-based payments globally. Um, but most of that action or uh, progress has been made almost exclusively in China from a volume perspective. You know, they, they represent well over 95% of the, um, the mobile payments volume globally. Um, and if you look at why China has made so much progress with, with mobile payments is they haven't really taken the old Visa, MasterCard, plastic model and adapted it. They've essentially, they essentially started from scratch based on mobile tech. And the same is true for um, cryptocurrency adoption. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Japan is doing a ton of uh, uh, work in, uh, you know, crypto right now, but other, other countries that have adopted it. Um, if you look at those areas where it's had, um, you know, the most success, it's really where it hasn't been done as an adaptation of the old system. Um, sort of a uh, an attempt to integrate it in um, the banking system from a traditional infrastructure perspective. It's been something more first principles based, um, where people have started from scratch and looked at new ways to approach it based on crypto tech. Yeah, and it comes also to mind uh, as an example of uh, crypto adoption, uh, Bangladesh. Uh, in particular, they launched, um, I remember, a Bitcoin prepaid card and they had a Cointext uh, SMS cryptocurrency uh, wallet uh, system. It, but sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in relation to adoption of uh, cryptocurrencies, um, it's what what it seems to be one of the uh, limits, one of the only few things that are 
stopping in the first world uh, uh, to adopt uh, cryptocurrency in, in a wider, um, wider level, apart from obviously the usual trust thing. What, what do you think? What do you think are the limits at the moment for us? Well, I, I think you have to look at um, the design problem that crypto can solve, rather than sort of, you know, you don't want to have a um, a, a a solution looking for a problem to resolve. But if if you look historically at the way we've used money, as an example, um, then you know. If, if you look at how how currencies, individual geographically based currencies emerged, they essentially emerged as you know, more efficient value exchange mechanisms than the barter systems and so forth that existed back then. You know, when we started, um, the first paper currencies were issued by individual banks and then they were sort of standardized um, you know, based on a geographical region um, or a country, primarily because that then meant that individuals in that country would have a common value exchange system. And so that's what money was built for. It was to create an easier, um, you know, underlying basis for commerce and so forth. When you think about the world today, it's very, very different from the 12th and 13th century when um, you know the the world's first paper currency started to emerge. Really, you know, today current commerce is is a global um, uh, practice, and so you, you really need something that can enable commerce across geographical boundaries in the in the most frictionless manner and trying to adapt a physical paper currency a fiat currency backed by you know a single central bank in a, uh, a you know, geographical region to real-time global commerce is is tough because paper currency wasn't designed for that now we have obviously largely digitized fiat currency you know most of the uh, movement of fiat currency globally now happens electronically but if you were to design a currency from scratch to work in an optimal manner based on this real-time you know always connected world you would end up some, with something that looks more like Bitcoin than a digitized form of the US dollar and that's so that's essentially you know what is happening right now yeah, it does remind me uh, some of the uh, studies that actually Yuval Harari, uh, the author of Homo Sapiens did uh, in his book. And um, the, for example, when he covers actually the, uh, the exchange history and he talks about the barley money uh, around like I believe it was the 3000 uh, before Christ. And then you had the Roman gold coins and, and so forth. Yeah. So, Definitely, uh, what we're experiencing right now is a period, uh, is a shift, is a period where technology is somehow uh, allowing humans to be, uh, to have superpowers, to be augmented. Uh, so money and the banking system, uh, it's something that has been part of um, uh, humankind for a very long time, but only right now, probably we have the technology level that will allow us to progress and to find something that 
works better um, for us as technology is also working both ways and is changing us. And this was introduced me the fact uh, um, that right now is so-called fourth industrial revolution with uh, the introduction of AI uh, in, uh, in, in many aspects of technology. Do you think that um, cryptocurrencies they, they use in um, uh, decentralized systems, their leverage on uh, an old technology, which is the blockchain technology, uh, but there, there are also, for example, in the blockchain as a, tech, as a, as a system, um, there are examples of AI being integrated uh, in cryptos. Do you think that a, a, this is another field where AI will create a, a positive disruption? connect um, AI with with crypto um, you know crypto didn't emerge as a result of advancements in artificial intelligence but the uh, mechanisms for value exchange how we'll use money um, you know the biggest change that's going to occur in the future is essentially that we're going to use agency we're going to use AI based uh, agents that will do transfers for us that they will uh, act on our behalf uh, we'll use technologies like Amazon Alexa and Siri and we'll just say hey uh, Siri you know book me a flight to uh, uh, you know Rome on the weekend uh, you know make sure it's uh, built against the company account um, you know or book me a uh, restaurant to uh, you know down in Chinatown tonight for five people make sure it's a well, it's a it's a well uh, recommended restaurant five star rated or something like that and you Your, your AI-based agent will go and do that. Now, as those systems emerge, um, you know, it's quite possible, depending on how much autonomy we give those that, that agency, that they will find more efficient mechanisms of creating value exchange from one AI system to another than, um, than the way we currently think about monetary transfer and so forth. So there is a potential for um, the worlds of cryptocurrency and AI from an agency perspective when it comes to things like payments to uh, to emerge. The other thing, of course, is, uh, you know, value exchange systems. So, um, you know, you, you when you start thinking about different ways of conducting commerce based on AI, then you could move away from... Um, the, the monetary system almost in its entirety you could now start to trade um, you know in in uh, you know utility or something similar so you could have people trading hours uh, to access uh, an apartment or Airbnb for hours driven on an uber or you know a, a scooter or something you, know, you could have a form of barter that emerges um, powered by AI that could be very frictionless so um, yeah there, there are different value exchange mechanisms that I think will emerge out of the AI world that will tend to be um, you know, look a lot more like crypto than, um, you know, the fiat currency based world. Yeah, that's, that reminds me of, uh, for example, the IOTA uh, crypto, which I believe it was specifically designed for um, IOT and, and other tokens, digital tokens to be used for uh, uh, virtual environments. So for example, to purchase virtual coins um, within uh, video games. Um, or to, um, in the case of IOTA, having uh, 
purchase a credit and then use that credit to allow a machine to buy apps or updates and in that way somehow diversify create a diversification uh, in the crypto environment and having dedicated uh, blockchains for certain types of transactions uh, like as an example of ripple for uh, for banking and tell me about apart from the banking world um, in other worlds for example education um, how you think the current uh, technology innovations will influence not just the consumer behavior but the society uh, at large at least in the first world well one of the main um, yeah, there's a couple but uh, you know I think both education and healthcare um, are you know extremely ripe for disruption and I think we're going to see a lot of uh, changes um, happening happening there and much of the education system that we have today was designed uh, and you're coming out of the industrial revolution it was designed very much like a production line where you know, people moved out of uh, you know they, they you went to do your um, learn your mathematics then your science then your writing or English uh, you know uh, uh, language skills so you know it is it, built like a production line it's built to produce uh, you know, compliant drones to work in factories you know you'd have to sit in the uh, the classroom you weren't able to ask a question unless the teacher asked you you know I mean it really was built uh, you know for the industrial revolution the sort of skills that we'll need our kids to have for the future are very very different today and so we need a much more um, adaptive education system we need our, our kids to learn to be um, very adaptable to to be able to learn new skills very rapidly um, there's there's no scenario in the future where they they do their uh, you know uh, primary schooling and then move through to university and um, you know at the end of university qualify for a job they're going to have for the next 40 years that's not how um, you know work um, is going to uh, uh, function over the next uh, 50 years um, and on healthcare, um, you know what we're, we're seeing other industries being disrupted um, healthcare is going to be massively disrupted by sort of two primary um, technology themes, one being uh, gene genetics, gene therapy, and the other being, uh, uh, you know, sensor-based data, um, real-time data. Um, and so those two things are going to massively change the way we handle diagnosis and treatment of uh, conditions. If it's a genetic condition you have, you know, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cystic fibrosis, uh, you know, a genetic heart uh, heart disease, and so forth. Rather than treat that with drugs to mask the symptoms of those diseases, in the future we'll just, you know, um, reprogram your DNA to eliminate those diseases uh, from your genome. Yeah, it comes to mind also the uh, uh, recently um, entrepreneurs like um, Elon Musk uh, showed interest in brain-computer interfaces. Uh, which was, uh, you know, a consumer in the consumer level was something uh, not being covered seriously until recent years. It was more a domain of uh, the healthcare and medical and scientific world. Uh, but that it's clear reminder of the fact that um, technology is somehow filling the gaps uh, for uh, for humans in relation to things like uh, uh, memory or uh, accessing. Um, knowledge 
um, pretty much um, at the speed of your internet connection. Uh, we have the 5G, which is being introduced, you know, technically uh, first quarter of 2020, um, and that will also bring countries that are currently on 3G connections to 4G. And that will just increase uh, the amount of data that can be exchanged and accessed from smartphones um, or IoT devices. Do you think that um, this is probably the first time in, in human history that uh, we have created something uh, that allows us to have some sort of superpowers? Uh, so, for example, if we don't know something, um, but we know how to uh, design a solution if we need uh, the blocks in order to uh, fill in the gaps for between us and a goal a target or a solution we know that we can uh, leverage on internet as a source of knowledge um, tutorials and up-to-date um, research uh, results but do you think that this superpower might also turn back as something negative is if it's not properly um, used in particular in the case of internet uh, well I think every technology has the potential to be to have a negative use there's, there's a yin and yang to technology adoption over the years you know if you look uh, you know 200 years ago 1812 in Britain um, you know the two uh, largest uh, industries were agriculture and textiles and um, the textiles industry was dramatically um, disrupted by the steam engine because you went from requiring highly skilled labor to be able to operate a weaving loom to now these steam driven uh, machines that replaced um, you know uh, um, more than 70% of the workforce uh, over the space of a decade and, and this is where we get the term in the West we use the term Luddite to describe someone who doesn't like technology um, this was a group of textile workers um, that were affected by this shift around the steam engine um, and so you have uh, um, 200 years later we have uh, uh, taxi drivers in uh, um, Italy and uh, France uh, stopping Uber vehicles and pulling drivers out and setting their cars uh, on fire. You have uh, in, uh, in Phoenix in Arizona right now where Waymo is testing their autonomous vehicles, people slashing the tires and throwing rocks at these autonomous vehicles and trying to run them off the road. Um, so, you, you, you know, in 200 years, our response to disruption from technology hasn't uh, changed all that much. Um, and so the, the potential for technologies to disrupt us is, is very high. And artificial intelligence is going to be the most disruptive technology we've ever seen um, in terms of displacement of uh, employment and um, you know, its impact on daily life. And yet we do a lot of debate about whether whether it's going to disrupt us, you know, is it going to result in unemployment, etc. Rather than actually planning for that disruption, rather than actually putting in place policies and um, you know structures in society that will mitigate the risk of uh, that disruption, we're not very good at preparing ourselves for the types of disruption we're talking about. But the neural interface thing 
that's a logical extension of the way we've used computer technology. You know, if you look back at the 1950s and 60s, as you know, computers emerged in society, then uh, they were very clunky, required a, a very high degree of technical competency to be able to operate. You know, when I learned to, to code computers when I was, uh, you know, in my my teens, um, I learned first on a punch card system. You know, um, using a, a deck of uh, paper cards that you'd mark with a pencil, um, and you'd put it in a machine. It would read those cards in to create the code and interpret it and spit out the results on a computer printer. And then, you know, then then we went to you know the Commodore VIC-20 and the BBC microcomputer and these very simple um, you know interfaces, uh, very simple screens, but still required a fairly high degree of technical competency. But today, you know, you have a two-year-old can pick up a um, an iPad and be proficient on it, you know, uh, within within moments because it's intuitive. And then you have the introduction of voice-based uh, computing, which you know the the interface has got simpler and simpler. So the ultimate form of of an interface between a human and a computer has to be a neural connection, where you just think about what you want and the computer responds in real time. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a very interesting field, um, the one of brain-computer interfaces, mostly because um, it's somehow it deals with um, you know the eternal question of understanding. Well, eternal question. It's you know, on a scientific level, is a study of the nervous system, and it points back to us uh, in showing uh, how last we know. Uh, how, uh, you know, we don't know much about how we form abstract uh, thoughts and how they actually present um, on a biological, chemical, uh, or neurological level. Uh, and those types of devices yeah, definitely... We, not to mention consciousness, we don't even understand how consciousness works. Yes, right. yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, over the time I had both interviews and long-time chats with um, scientists that they studied, specifically like Carol uh, uh, Edelman, Steven Pinker, uh, and, and I mean the, the topic of consciousness uh, from different disciplines. And um, the interesting thing is that just like when we started to, for example, study uh, the science of very large systems, like in cosmology, for example, um, or when we are living during the period of uh, the, the space exploration, every time we were dealing with something which is far beyond uh, the human scale, and in this case, it will be uh, the reverse of a cosmological scale because we will go, uh, we will, we will be in the realm of physics, so in, in a extremely small. When it comes down to uh, neural interfaces and connecting humans to machines, uh, we see we still see how um, different, how huge is the gap uh, between the creator, which is humans, and the machine, which is still uh, a tool. Uh, but um, I, I really like your, um, your response about uh, the way uh, humans deal with uh, innovation. It's absolutely true, and it reminds um, the way the growth curve um, difference between technology evolution and humankind evolution is somehow we're still uh, chasing up uh, with technology. Uh, for example, on a consumer level, there is new apps and new tools that are constantly introduced in the market. And we don't have yet uh, enough people that they understand uh, how it works in the back end or how to troubleshoot um, 
possible issues or errors that comes up both on the hardware and, and software side. Do you think that we should focus uh, in the future uh, in order to find a solution to fill this gap between uh, uh, technology growth and uh, uh, humankind adoption of uh, technology in order to make the whole experience more enjoyable and somehow a little bit more fast? I think yes, um, but I think the, the key challenge, of course, is that the, the rate of technology change has sped up. And I think that's why you get this friction right now. Um, you know, a lot of the reason we see Brexit and Trump and, and these sort of populist movements is as a result of the rate of cultural change um, that's impacting the world. Now, people will talk about globalization as, as a negative, um, you know, and, and as a cause for the rise of populism. But if you think about it, the, the internet created... Um, you know, a, a much faster rate of change around globalization on things like trade and connectivity and communication um, than, than we'd seen before. So you can tie technology closely to, I think, the populist movement just based on the rate of change issue. Now, you could argue that um, things may pair off. You know, we're coming to the logical end of Moore's law where the limits, the, the, the limitation of physics in terms of design of chips means that we won't be able to keep up the rate of change that uh, we saw with Moore's law since the 60s. Um, and, you know, you already have a lot of the the uh, benefits of the internet in terms of, uh, you know, uh, real-time uh, global connectivity such that when 5G comes along, it's just an amplification of that technology rather than you know something entirely new so maybe we've already baked in the disruption of the, the sort of real-time uh, feedback loop and systems that um, you know the internet uh, evolved but at the same time um, the machine-to-machine -machine communication that's going to merge on top of AI um, and the high levels of automation in society um, um, you know, AI, while it uses the framework of the internet as, as, as part of its, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, platform or infrastructure, uh, AI has, is going to be even more disruptive than, than the internet. So I'm, I'm very concerned about how we adapt to this. Now, the, the one saving grace is that we are, we have a generation of children who have been raised you know, the last 20 years and all they've ever known is real-time connectivity with the internet, you know? They never had to pick up a encyclopedia off the bookshelf to look up a definition of uh, um, some, uh, you know, uh, formula or, uh, you know, some history or something like that. They could just ask Google. And so, you know, our, our kids, I think, will be much better at absorbing these changes because they've lived in a world of constant technological change. So that's the one saving grace, but it is a bit of a generational shift or clash that's coming. Definitely. Yeah, it's the, the more we go further in the, in the future, the more we're experiencing several changes within uh, one generation. So we, we have seen a, a deep uh, change uh, since the uh, 70s and 80s uh, till up today. 
but the new generation is experiencing updates and changes uh, even quarter by quarter. Uh, so as you said at the beginning of our call, uh, education will play a vital role in making sure that um, the uh, understanding of uh, diversification and the ability uh, to change and adapt will always be top priority because otherwise um, it, it will be uh, a constant chase uh, with uh, the evolution. The techn technology is going to keep going forward and we will always be going to chase up to that growth if we're not able to uh, be the best at adapting and understanding, being flexible and, and Globalization is uh, is a clear example, uh, the positive the meaning of uh, globalization is a clear example of the fact that uh, inclusion is mandatory um, in order to uh, create large infrastructure that will be sustainable uh, in the longer period. And otherwise, we'll have uh, individual groups struggling and not being able to collaborate and work together and exchange ideas and, and grow faster and better. Okay, so the... Um, I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually working on um, a sequel to Augmented right now, a new book. Um, it's working title is called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. Okay, yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask if you have a sequel planned for Augmented. Yep. Yeah, and it's trying to tackle this very problem about the inequality that is uh, inevitably going to be created with, uh, with tech. Um, if you look at the stock markets globally, the fastest growing companies over the last decade have all been technology companies. Um, and despite the fact that Apple is uh, suffering right now in terms of their share price because of the declining take-up of iPhones, as an example, um, the reality is that um, you know if you look at every you know you look at the two big stock markets around the world right now in terms of, of growth, um, you know in China and uh, uh, here in the U.S. and you see that the you know the top companies in China you know. BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent in, in US, it's Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, um, and um, most of the growth in the stock market over the last few years, at least since 2008, has come almost exclusively from these technology players. That's where the growth in the in the market has come. And so, you know, we, we, we have to get used to the fact that actually it's not the old industrials, it's not the oil companies and the banks and, and, and these types of, uh, you know, 20th century constructs emerging from the industrial revolution that are any longer the core creators of value in in the, uh, the global marketplace. Um, instead it's technology but the problem with technology is it works very differently from those old comp companies that used to convert raw materials into product for example so you have a, a redefining of sort of the supply and demand curve away from this conversion uh, mentality or conversion process where we took raw materials you know uh, based on demand and created supply by uh, constructing these products and you know you have supply and demand curve 101 you know looking for equilibrium using price quantity and so forth to now a technology-based economy where once you create the software or the AI it can essentially reach infinite demand 
without requiring additional labor to be injected into the labor force. And, and, and we start to see the early sort of warning systems around this because if you look at the profitability of a company like Facebook or Amazon or Baidu or Alibaba, you know, they're creating massive profits, like um, you know, half a million dollars net earnings per year per employee. Whereas these old companies, there's one tenth of that in terms of their, or, or one twentieth of that in terms of their ability to leverage a human to create, uh, you know, um, margin in in the old world. So these companies are massively more efficient at creating profits. But what happens is these profits go back into the technology companies. This wealth is held by an increasingly small group of individuals. Um, and, and that's a real problem for equality. Now, when you have AI kick in and you have labor displacement as a result of this continuing cycle, then what happens to these people who no longer can work because they don't have the skills? Um, do you just say, oh, well, you know, this is this is progress, it's capitalism and, and um, you know, just just kick on? Or when you have the potential of, say, 30 or 40 percent youth unemployment because they're coming out of an education system with completely the wrong skills for the new world, do you try and mitigate that that risk by trying to more equitably uh, distribute that wealth. You know, do you tax technology companies at a higher rate? Do you create corporate social responsibility programs where wealth flows back into things like universal basic income structures or something like that, so that you mitigate the risk of that uh, displacement and social disruption? Um, that that's really what I'm very interested in uh, exploring right now. Yeah, a typical example um, of things that they hadn't been included in the core um, uh, of education in relation to technology uh, when it comes to mind is security. And uh, right now, more and more companies are talking about um, security by design, so included prior to the launch of a product. But we have experienced, uh, and we're still experiencing, um, situations where products are introduced in the market and then the security aspect uh, of, for example, of the data that is being either injected or acquired through those products is covered late at the later stage. And also, um, another thing that comes to mind, still related to uh, concepts that are uh, in, the, in the security field, uh, um, are things like understanding the impact that, uh, on a social level, uh, that technology has and the responsibilities about covering not just the technical aspect, but the process aspect, for example, the policies and the documentation that comes to uh, maintaining, developing, and troubleshooting uh, digital products. And all this actually um, is constantly and currently still being updated um, in, in courses and in schools and entities that educate people and prepare people to work uh, in the technology uh, field. So definitely, um, I see from a personal uh, side a huge uh, social impact uh, of uh, technology. And so thank you for your time, Brett, and uh, please keep in touch. Um, about um, your upcoming um, release of Augmented. I'm pretty sure you're going to uh, post updates on your Twitter uh, page about that and about your work uh, in the banking world. 
and uh, thank you again for your time and for taking this call and to have this brief chat. I'm very grateful, Julio, for uh, the opportunity and um, yeah, thank you for uh, for listening. And um, I would just uh, I'll leave you with one thought is uh, in, in the last uh, 250 years, as we've looked at um, the world changing as a result of technology, one thing has been become clear, which is uh, um, no one has ever successfully resisted uh, the changes that technology has uh, has inflicted on the world. And so I think we would do better to um, prepare ourselves for these changes coming rather than um, trying to resist them. But I, I'm an optimist and I think the future uh, based on these technology changes is bright and uh, I hope uh, I hope uh, that others can see it similarly. Thank you for uh, thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you, Brett. Bye bye. Thank you.